Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God the Father and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God, which we will consider today, is recorded in the sixth chapter of St. Mark's Gospel, beginning at the first verse. There we read as follows in Jesus' name. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did this man learn these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to this man? How is it that miracles such as these are performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and then in his own house. He could not do any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went around the villages teaching. These are the words. Heavenly Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, dear fellow redeemed, the traditional focus of this particular Sunday of the church year has to do with the topic of giving thanks to God. Of course, we consider that subject at some length on our national day of thanksgiving at the end of November each year. On that day, we especially concentrate on thanking God for his gifts to our nation. We thank him for our freedoms, for our prosperity, our security, all of the physical blessings that we as Americans uh, have come to expect in our lives. The scripture readings for this Sunday, though, remind us especially of God's spiritual blessings and how we ought to respond to them. Sadly, as with the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus with only one returning to give him thanks, we would admit that we don't always pause to reflect on what our Lord does, not only for our bodies, but for our souls. He gives to us the forgiveness of all of our sins for Jesus' sake, and with it then, the assurance that we'll have eternal life with him in heaven. But too often we overlook and ignore those spiritual gifts which far outlast anything else that we might have and enjoy during our days here on earth. In our text today, we see another example of ingratitude toward Jesus and his gift of salvation. In fact, St. Mark here tells us that when Jesus came and taught and healed his fellow townsfolk, they were not thankful for the most part. Rather, they were scandalized. 
offended by him. Let's consider then, as we look at this, our theme, a startling scandal in Nazareth. And in looking at it, we ask these two questions. First, what caused this scandal? And secondly, what were the results of that scandal? The scandal or the offense that we're talking about was caused by the sharp contrast between what the people saw and heard and what they expected to see and hear when Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown, for a visit. Mark begins, Jesus went to his hometown. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. Jesus' message startled his old friends and neighbors as he read to them and then explained the scriptures. They were initially awestruck by his understanding, insight, and perception. They'd never heard anything like it. They were amazed. Strangely, though, their sense of amazement before long changed to something else. Instead of welcoming him and honoring him, the people of Nazareth now regarded him with some suspicion. They may have heard of the miracles that he had performed in other places in their area, but because they couldn't understand the source of his wisdom and power and insight, they became offended, indignant. They asked, where did this man learn these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to this man? How is it that miracles such as these are performed at his hands? What they were hearing and observing did not fit with their preconceptions about him. They knew Jesus as one of their own, but like others, they assumed that the promised Messiah the Savior of the world would one day appear to them in great splendor and might. So how could he be the one? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? If Jesus really was the promised one, if he was the great and holy one who was to come, then why had he lived so many years among them in obscurity, working in the carpenter's shop? Jesus hadn't come from a prominent family. The people in town were used to seeing his mother and his brothers and sisters, and they all seemed quite ordinary. Jesus had not gone off to mix with the rich and influential leaders of the nation in Jerusalem, and he hadn't been sent off to a prestigious boarding school to prepare for a great career. He stayed, and he worked alongside Joseph. So it didn't add up. They could not connect the amazing things they were now hearing and seeing with the everyday ordinariness of their own lives in Nazareth, a life Jesus had shared with them for 30 years. And so Mark records the shocking conclusion they came to regarding him. He writes, they took offense at him. They were scandalized 
taken by surprise, confused. Instead of being honored and overjoyed to be with him, instead of being thankful for him, they resented him and rejected him so that the saying applied which Jesus spoke, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own house. Though they felt scandalized, by him, the greater scandal was their shocking rejection of him. How sad it is that many people still today react with ingratitude toward Christ. Though he is the eternal son of God and the creator of the world, Jesus came here and assumed the nature of a lowly servant. He was born here as a helpless infant. He lived most of his life in quietness and poverty. He faced ingratitude and rejection from the very nation to whom the promise of his coming was given and repeated over and over. The climax to this scandalous ingratitude was his suffering and dying as a criminal hanging on a cross all the while as the crowd below hurled their filthy insults at him. So Isaiah foretold 800 years before his birth, he had no beauty or majesty uh, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so for his return to Nazareth, he did not come that day surrounded by a loud, impressive, fearsome army. He came to his hometown with some friends, without fanfare. And that's how he still comes to us now. He still comes in something so common as water drawn from the sink. But in that water of holy baptism, which is connected to and which is empowered by his word, he actually washes away our sins and draws us by faith to himself. He actually causes us to be born again. He still comes today in something so common as words that we can hear with our ears, words printed on page. But because Jesus' word is the word of God, it's able to actually work in our hearts the faith to accept him through the Holy Spirit as our only savior from sin. He comes to us in something still today so plain and common as bread and wine. But because he has joined those common elements to his word in the sacrament of Holy Communion, they are then also his true body and blood, which he gives to us personally as the most intimate and comforting assurance that he has taken away all of our sins. Jesus' commonness is seen also by his choice of messengers. His first disciples weren't famous, acclaimed scholars and bold, intrepid uh, warriors. They were ordinary fishermen. Yet they went out to be his ambassadors before the world. Today, he still uses people like you and like me to spread the good news of salvation, which is simply through faith in him. 
Though he could have made this known by the angels, he has entrusted that privilege to common people like us. The citizens of Nazareth that day were scandalized and unappreciative and offended because of the common coming and appearance of the Lord. And that scandal persists today because of the common and ordinary means by which Jesus comes to us and enters our hearts and enters our lives. And so next today we ask, what was the result of this shocking scandal of ingratitude in Nazareth? You know, the usual outcome of a political or a religious scandal is that those involved in it either get fired or thrown out of office or they go to jail for a while. What about the scandal in Nazareth? The result of it was that Jesus could not help the people there. Mark goes on in our text, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their unbelief. That same reaction to our Lord is still found among many today. Some are offended by the very message that God's own son needed to come here and bleed and die for our sins. Others hear the gospel of his forgiving love for each of us and they dismiss it as being something too cheap, too simple. Still others are ungrateful and offended by Christ because they believe they can make up for their own sins with their own sterling efforts and accomplishments, their own merits and works, and so in trusting in those, they push away both our Lord and his grace. In doing this, they tragically fall away from God's unmerited saving love, they fall to their judgment in hell. Not thankful for Christ and his sacrifice, they end up despising the very one who bought them with his own blood, and they are left finally with no one to rescue them from their sin and guilt. Dear friends, may God forbid that that should ever happen among any of us. But we should not miss this that not every person in Nazareth resisted and turned away from Jesus. Not every person was offended and refused his help. Remember, Mark tells us that he was able to heal what he called a few sick people in their midst. No doubt, like their neighbors, those people who were healed were surprised and amazed by what he said and what he did. But where the others were scandalized and unthankful, these people were drawn to him and led to believe in him. And so they received the help that they needed, which only Jesus could give them. So also today, some likewise hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, and they believe it, and they're saved. And then when they die, they go to heaven. They're enchanted by the amazing love shown to us by the God of the universe who sent his own son to save the world. 
they hear that Christ left his glorious home in paradise and assumed the nature of a common and despised human being so that you and I one day can be right at home with him in paradise. They hear the report that Jesus took to himself the sin and the guilt of all people, that he took it away by his shameful dying on the cross. They hear the good news that he rose from the dead on the third day and that for his sake we are forgiven all of our sins. We stand innocent before God, covered in Christ. They're thankful for this and they attach their hope and their hearts to his promise of everlasting love. How about us? How would you and I rate our own gratitude for Jesus Christ? Would we be among the nine who walked away from him, healed but ungrateful? Would we be like the majority in Nazareth who actually came to be offended by him because he was so common and so familiar? Or would we instead see ourselves totally by God's grace as being fully aware of this gift that we've been given and deeply, deeply thankful for it? so that we want to worship him with our fellow believers at every opportunity, so that we want to confess him among ourselves and before the world, so that we want to support his gospel and the preaching of it with our time and our energies and our money. May God grant that this may be so always among us. May we hear the gospel again and again and trusting in it, cling to Jesus of Nazareth as our true and only Savior. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forevermore. Amen.